Hello and welcome to episode 106 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I'm Anthony Malakian, U.S. Editor of Waters, and as always, joined by news editor James Rundle. Hello. So, uh, today we're going to talk about a pretty big uh, white paper that's that uh, we got to write about exclusively, I think it, is, uh, yep. it was. Um, but looking specifically at blockchain on the buy side, um, really, really interesting findings there. And then I think what was most interesting was just the scope and the the buy side firms, the big firms that were involved in the production of this. Yeah, I mean, this was really kind of the cream of the, the crop when it comes to the UK buy side. Um, sure. You know, you well, have, so before we get into it, before, so into just teasing that a little bit, <laughs> just teasing it. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit just about um, some other stories that have appeared on Waters. Uh, for the uh, women in data and technology, uh, you know, hopefully you've gotten your submissions in. Today's, you know, you got to get them in by today. Yeah. Uh, there's already been extension. And inevitably, I look forward to coming in on Monday and people be like, I forgot, Stand I'm so again. sorry, please come in. But no, no, you, you really can't. It's a, it's a bummer, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, but I gotta tell my boss I didn't get it. It's like, well, yeah, you gotta tell your boss that you screwed up. Yeah, good like luck on that. And then get the email from my resident chief going, actually, we're gonna let this fuck. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. <laughs> I'm so used to telling my boss I screwed up, it's like a daily occurrence. Oh, yeah, exactly, just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't even say hello on the phone, which yeah, yeah. what now? So, what <laughs> Um, so we got that uh, SST award, Cell Side Technology Awards uh, submission for that will be opening up event. I think sometime in February, but got a little bit more time before that opens mm-hmm. up. Um, it's coming there. Yeah, and then um, the Women in Data and Technology uh, event itself will be held in London in uh, March, and the Cell Side Technology Awards. I, I believe this has been finalized, are going to be held in London this year. Really? Yeah. Nice. Tragic that's not going to be here. No in... more double-barrel conference oh, awards night. God, I know you God. love that, guys. We certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we got coming up. But first, all right, let's get into this, because this was a really, really uh, uh, expansive, deep-dive uh, look mm. into, um, you know, a lot of time when we're talking about distributed ledger technologies and you know blockchain being the the most prevalent, um, but a lot of time when we talk about this, it is about you know exchanges, sell side firms, big banks, you know, every, you know firms like that. Maybe some very very big buy side firms you'll hear about here and there, kind of get involved. But by and large, that has been left. DLT development has been yeah. left to the sell side to, 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 to take quite it away. a shocking extent. Actually, I think in the paper it said something like ninety five percent of investment comes from the sell side when, mm-hmm. you, when you break it down by financial services. Um, so yeah, the the sell side really has taken the lead in this, and I guess it's not surprising. They're the ones with the research budgets. They're the ones with the big technology teams. You know, outside of the the really big global asset managers who have their own dedicated technology resources. Your standard hedge fund or asset manager isn't going to be having a dedicated blockchain program going on. But where this paper is significant is it had around a dozen of the biggest asset managers and investment managers in the UK. It had um, consultants, trade associations, vendors, fintechs, uh, even sell-side service providers as well got involved with it. Um, dozens and dozens of people, I think nearly 50 or something peer-reviewed it. Um, and it's really probably the first time I think I've seen a cohesive sort of by-side specific view of what the sure. technology should be. And it doesn't really go into specifics of saying what it should be actually, it just it kind of takes a step back and it says, okay, what does the buy-side want to get out of this? What are the risks of not getting engaged with this? And the risk, quite frankly, 
is that the sell side will run away with it and they'll tailor blockchain development to suit them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's still the same industry. The buy side and the sell side have certain priorities that are aligned, but they also have certain priorities that are not necessarily aligned. And when it comes to blockchain, the paper makes the point that, okay, you know, if you leave this up to the sell side, they're going to use it to stop themselves being disintermediated. Um, whereas if the buy side takes control of this, they have the opportunity to re-engineer certain trade practices um, to really move forward on dematerialization and digitization to make it work for them. And that's including things that the sell side might find uncomfortable, such as the removal of certain asset servicing functions, um, you know, and various other things as well. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things, so uh, Jim wrote a story about this, and we'll link to it, but it's called uh, Buy Side Bands Together on Blockchain Vision in Landmark Paper. Jesus, with the alliteration. Um, <laughs> 90 to 95% of, inve- so this is Investment Association, finds that 90 to 95% of investment DLT comes from the sell side with the buy side make up the rest. And one of the writers of this, Ian Hunt, uh, had a quote in there that I thought was interesting. I'll kind of bring me to my next point, but um, the buy side is traditionally relied on the sell side to innovate for, then there has been a rush to join in when innovation is stabilized. That was fine when the interests of the buy side and sell sides were convergent, as they were, for example, for state straight through processing fix, DLT is different. Because that's the one thing that, you know, as I was reading this, so it's a great paper, it's definitely worth a read. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I think that a lot of um, people on the buy side would uh, disagree with the thrust of the importance of the buy side getting involved in this right now. So the thrust of this paper, um, you know, look at some of the major technology changes like cloud, for example. When we had conferences, you know, a decade ago, eight years ago, um, when I joined, um, buy side was like, we're not, we don't care about the cloud. Let's, yeah. You know, sell side will work all that kind of out. With a few noticeable hedge fund exceptions. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing. You know, exactly. You know, you'll have the biggest kind of guys, the most sophisticated guys, the ones with a big research. Um, arm that will be looking at it, but basically, like you guys figure it out, we'll decide when when the water's right to jump in. Um, you know, I can think of like Clay Stack at Marathon Asset Management. You know, he's always he's like only now just starting to get get involved in cloud. <laughs> he's like just dipping his toes, but obviously that's the extreme exception. So for me, I, I, the way I've always viewed it is these major kind of shifts in technology um, or these major new kind of technologies. The sell side usually has taken it on themselves to go through the growing pains of it. Yeah. And because they have the bigger uh, budgets of bigger teams and stuff like that, again, taking out the, the largest, most sophisticated hedge funds. Um, so for me, I, I, I'm i not necessarily seeing why it's so important that the buy side, yes, they can get this into me in some ways, but at the end of the day, they're going to be able to play a game of catch up on this because they and without having to go through all those fits and starts that you know that we're seeing like all these banks that join these consortiums and said well this consortium's not working for me I'm leaving the consortium you know and, and you know kind of just this confusion that's kind of being created right now as we're starting to now see production of blockchains I don't see why it's so important maybe for the yeah. people that you spoke with why well, do you think it's important I mean you come back to the author so Ian Hunt is very well known in investment management circles. He's been around for many, many years, uh, very ingrained in technology. Uh, Chris Mills, I think, used to work at Deloitte yeah. and various other things yep. as well. From speaking at Ian, kind of outside of this over the years, um, and more recently with this paper, I think the point of this is that, yes, the sell side has typically taken on the brunt of the work when it comes to emerging technologies. I mean, further to your point, I was speaking to Andy Powers from Poland Capital uh, last year, and he was saying, look, 
we have an advisor who comes in and talks to us about like AI, about blockchain, and everything else, but we're going to wait for our vendors to do it because we yeah. don't do it. But the thing with DLT is that while blockchain itself as a technology may not be the final form of what they do, the underlying principles that um, go in towards append-only blockchain and distributed ledger and all the rest of it will have a fundamental effect on how the industry uses technology and how these processes move forward. So I think the point they're making, and from speaking with Ian about this, it was more a case of this is an area where it can't be left to the sell side to direct the way in which the technology is developed because it will be developed in a way that suits the sell side. Yeah. Um, and it's not a case of finding a catch-up afterwards because once you've done that, it's too late. Mm-hmm. You need to get involved in an early stage to ensure that the development and the R&D that goes into this is geared towards a direction that doesn't just allow people like central security suppositories to then own a blockchain and effectively everything's still the same, it's just now it's in the blockchain rather than sort of as it was before. That well, I think that, you know, maybe a key line that, that you wrote in this, but is that, you know, um, the report suggests a widespread deployment of DLT has the potential to harm parts of the sell side revenue stream. Yeah. So the so the sell side in some way cases will not be as, there's not an impetus for them to necessarily go down certain paths. Because it's a degradation of their influence and their power. And, sure. and as we say, you know, at the end of the day, they're filthy lucre that yeah. comes in. Um, so that's the point of saying that there will be things that are beneficial to the buy side and could really enable the buy side moving forward. That will be almost deliberately ignored if it's left up to people who have no actual interest in pursuing that because it will harm them. So yeah. that's what I'm saying. You can't play catch-up with this in the same way that you could with cloud because cloud is just a universal technology that everyone's going to use, right? Yeah. Blockchain is one of those things, as we've said for years in our reporting and as people are finally starting to you know, validate now, Some people, yeah. it's not something that you just put in place like a cloud or like a, a, a distributed computing or that yeah. kind of thing. It's something you have to specifically target at specific use cases for there to be an impact for it what those use cases are, are being determined at the moment by the people putting the investment in, which is the sell side. And yeah. they're not going to put those use cases forward where it's going to harm them. So, yeah. yeah, the old yeah. hammer looking for now. Uh, right, exactly. Well, you know, biting off your nose to spite yeah. your face. Everybody's kind of saying that this is going to be the biggest thing, that everything's going to be run on blockchain. It's like, it's not. we've I been mean, like, saying yeah. this for a while now, but you still read it, even in big-time magazines, big-time technology magazines, you still do read that. Well, you do. And We're a big-time technology magazine. And this comes from a, a lot of cases of fundamental misunderstanding of the technology and that everyone sees distributed ledger as a technology in its own right. And it's not. Same with AI. Various subforms and kind of morpher and that kind of thing that come off it. So you have append-only blockchains, you have permission blockchains, you have non-permission blockchains. Uh, certain elements of distributed ledger technology could be used for things like position keeping for eyeball yeah. and that kind of thing, but you wouldn't use a blockchain for that. Lots of bastardization too, exactly. as, as happens with any uh, technology, any new kind of technology. You know, it's kind of yeah. like everything was cloud. It's like, well, really, you know, there's kind of this software and service kind of model. There's mm-hmm. all these kind of different models that kind of spin off of that. Exactly. But the ledger functionality in itself is highly useful and will likely be used in a lot of technology over the next 10 years, whether that's actually, you know, LCH isn't going to magically announce it's now running on a blockchain the yeah. next day, but it might, in its next platform upgrade, use elements of that technology in it. So it is going to become an important architectural consideration for any technology moving forward. And the point is saying you have to be ahead of this. So. And uh, just, you know, in case people want some further reading on just an interesting subtopic, uh, Wei Shen Wang, our uh, Asia editor, uh, wrote another piece on quantum computing, and mm-hmm. specifically the feature was around how it will disrupt emerging technologies and one large piece of that was looking at how quantum computing could potentially yeah. destroy blockchains. If you're, um, if you're into blockchain for the cryptography, then uh, hey, guess what's coming in the yeah, next exactly. 10, 20 years? That <laughs> might not uh, be the case long term, but it's an interesting read, so uh, mm. we'll link to that as well. 
Um, all right, very good. Um, so, so I'm sorry. Then, as you spoke with um, Ian and uh, Chris, um, going forward, do they have any kind of prediction? What what kind of what is the call to arms now? What's that next step? Well, um, so this is kind of a weird paper in that it was produced kind of with sponsorship from Line Data and a couple of uh, investment firms, M&G and Insight Investments, I think. And the IEA kind of had a hand in, the Investment Association had a hand yeah. in kind of forming it as well. Yeah, that's um, But it's kind of, it's not been published for any one kind of medium. So I know that uh, they put it out on Microsoft and IBM's websites and various other things. Microsoft and IBM are actually going to host conferences in uh, March and April based on the findings of this report for buy-side firms. And the IEA, I think, is going to host one as well um, on yeah. February the 6th, a launch event or something. So... The final form of what actually happens at the end of this, whether there becomes a big industry-wide working group like there was around... I mean, Ian was quite involved with Eyeball, for instance, and that led to the Eyeball Working Standards Group and that kind of thing. We were quite involved with Eyeball. Yes, we were. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Um, So whether that ends up being a similar kind of thing where you now have like a buy-side working group that defines standards for what it considers to be uh, DLT useful and that kind of thing is probably the case, but... Yeah, see what happens with the Microsoft and IBM conferences in March and April, I think, and that's the next step. Okay. Um, the other thing we wanted to talk about, um, a little bit more off the beaten path, you know, we like to show it at, at Waters here. We like to show that we are well involved in the technology revolutions, i.e. blockchain, and then the uh, these kind of reports, stuff like that. We also like to think about, you know, just broader, you yeah. know, technology, theory, trends, things like that. So um, one story that I looked at that we thought somebody might find interesting is um, did a little bit of feature here on looking at how public schools and really society as a whole, we are not properly preparing um, our kids, our children of today for the jobs of tomorrow. Yeah, I love this story. Apart from the fact that every time I read the headline, I get the offspring stuck in my head. Yeah, and exactly. Back yeah. Again, <laughs> just those opening couple of like yeah. struggles just again and again and again. So the feature uh, is called The Kids Aren't Alright, a look into how K-12 through schools are failing to teach programming. Um, this all stemmed off of our cover story. Was, uh, for the cover, we spoke with uh, uh, Seth Thompson of DRW. And we were just kind of having a conversation. All of a sudden, you know, we, we, you know, we just asked him about some of his passion and stuff like that. And he started talking about how, you know, he's teaching his kids now who are 12 and 8, I believe. The, the son, I believe, is 12. The daughter is 8. And teach them how to code now. Mm-hmm. Um, got them involved in these kind of programs, um, both um, outside extracurricular uh, programs and um, also just kind of homeschooling them. On how to code, and you know, I'm a public school kid. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I was K through 12 public school. Went to state schools for college, uh, New Paltz, and then transferred over to uh, SUNY Plattsburgh. So, public schools are near and dear to my heart. But one of the things that is true is that public schools are underneath enough strain, enough pressure. Yeah. And whether you're Democrat or Republican, you're going to have reasons for this. And we can disagree that for, to those reasons, but the overall thrust of public schools in this country are, you know, they're struggling right now, oh, yeah. especially yeah, right. in inner cities um, and in rural areas. Oh, God, I mean, if you go to the South, like, um, I've said this to you before, one of my friends, uh, when he finished college, worked for Teach for America, where they give kids 
who are fresh out of college, six weeks of training to be a teacher, then fire them into these deprived areas because yeah. no teachers will go there. Yes, yeah, so exactly. Like, you know, yeah. And so what happens when you have a whole generation of kids who are not who are only going to potentially become exposed to coding, to programming, when they're in college because they took an elect- elective? Hopefully they go to college, first of all. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that can be done at home. You don't have to go far away. This is actually a useful tool. And there was a great story in Wired about how coders can become the blue-collar jobs of the future. How, yeah, you're going to have your elite pro- programs that are going to work on machine learning algorithms, stuff like that. But then just the everyday, listen, you know, my website, you know, I need somebody that just does a little bit of tinkering on my website or something like that. Yeah. Those coders, those will become the blue-collar jobs of tomorrow in many, many ways. Oh, hey, you already see it. I mean, I had a friend who, um, I mean, it's still quite, she's a very good programmer. She's a front-end developer. She had a messy divorce and decided that she wanted to go around the country for um, three months in a van. And so I did that. And uh, every time she ran out of money, she would just take a freelance job doing someone's website, building that kind of thing. I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that was the case if you drive to another town, you go work in a bar for a week, get some money, drive on to the next town, do that, and now it's sort of... Coders doing it, freelance jobs and that kind of thing. It's, it's interesting how it's changing. And it is something, it's truly, it's democratized in so many different ways, but you've got to get kids exposed to it at an earlier age. You can't just wait until they're maybe a senior in high school and they're in a computer, you know, kind of, mm. not computer science class, but a computer skills class, learning to type and learn how to use the internet, stuff like that. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and by the way, here's this thing called coding. Let's learn on basic or something well, like that. I find strange is during the 90s they did teach kids, because I specifically remember being in school, like having coding, like very rudimentary coding classes, but they taught you how to make <sighs> Hello World. And I was, I was watching <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer of all things in the day from the first season in 1996, and one of the scenes is them in a computer class being taught how to code. Yeah. So it did happen back then. They just seemed to have fallen off, I guess, with the introduction of Common Core and everything else that's sort of, you know, fallen by the wayside. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's the key, the single key essential skill of the future is going to be learning how to code, surely. I mean, in terms of... At least it will, again, when you, consi- when you consider kind of job skills, this is something that you can at least be on somewhat of equal footing with people. Mm-hmm. Same as reading, writing, arithmetic. Well, this is that kind of next level. It's reading, writing, arithmetic, coding, you know, kind of, that, that's what next generation. And where, where the proof of where the United States, I can't speak for other countries, is falling behind, but only 12 states have created K through 12 computer science standards. Um, and only 34 states plus D.C., uh, Washington, D.C., can computer science count towards high school graduation math or science requirements. Only Virginia, Virginia is the only state that became, where they became the first state to actually require computer science education in high schools, so not even in long, younger yeah. uh, classes. You know, Seth Thompson's kids are going to have such a leg up. You know, I'm sure, obviously, you're the CIO of, uh, mm. of DRW. I'm sure that they're, I don't know how much he makes, but I'm sure it's going to be a proper, at least upper middle class job. Sure. So you're going to have that leg up already. But once you start creating a generation of kids where only the ones that can go to the good Montessori schools, only ones that have parents that know how to code or that are getting them involved in coding, you're going to create a greater and greater and greater divide yeah. between you know those that are qualified for good jobs in the future and those that are now. And so I spoke with um, Dan Scheffler of uh, Chart IQ, and you know we were talking, and he was saying, you know, it when they get resumes in, 
you know, you're, you're trying to find diversity. Diversity is good, and not because of some, you know, you, tr- you want to do good for the world or anything like that, but just because people have different ideas, mm. and people with different backgrounds with different ideas, and that's good. You know, getting in a bunch of resumes, you know, when everybody is going to be a white male from a suburban background, yeah. you know, and maybe here you'll get, you know, uh, uh, an African-American, a Spanish kid, uh, a female, you know, it, it becomes diff- more difficult and difficult, and then so... Um, for this, also spoke with um, Jeannie Barrow. Uh, she was raised in Dominican Republic, um, came here when she was 14 um, to Jersey City, and she came across coding in her senior year of high school and then decided to follow it to Rutgers. Um, there was another uh, female I spoke with, uh, Lauren Gibbs. Um, she didn't come across, she accidentally fell into a, a programming class when she was in college mm. um, at James Madison simply because she couldn't get into the major that she wanted to as a freshman. So she just had to kind of take on some electives and she stumbled into this and now she does it for a living um, at Chart IQ and um, now is trying to teach our kids. But it really has to be more, a greater concern um, that we right now as a society, we're just kind of sitting back saying, well, you know, our, our public schools, what can we really do? There's going to have to be some federal funding. There's going to have to be yeah. some state funding. There's going to have to be some private investment. But we have to start having this discussion. I would love to hear some both national and local politicians start to take on this challenge more exactly. forcefully. And a recognition that when you teach kids computer science, you're not training space cadets who yeah. are just going to work in computer science. Yes. Or you're not training programmers. You're training people who are going to work across a broad range of industries. You know, if you're a journalist right now right. and you aren't learning coding, you are an idiot. I'm an old man, so I'm yeah. trying to learn a little bit. But if you can't even do the basics right now and you're in high school, college, you're already being left behind oh, by nice. you know, Louis Woodall, you know, who's out here well, you know, exactly, learning how yeah. to code and run a department. I mean, it's crazy. If you want a job at Bloomberg or the FT or anything, you have to know how to be able to build a database and to have that call for like data coming in and that kind sure. of thing. And you know, and as you say, you know, any kind of high-level journalism job, and journalism being a career path that is notoriously populated by people who are bad at math. Yeah. Like, you know, this is like, um, Failed intro to statistics twice, maybe. Exactly. This is, I didn't even take it because I knew I wasn't going to pass it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if, if our industry of all industries is requiring coding, then that's, uh, that's a sign that you need to be learning this, regardless of what you want to go into. Yeah. Um, you know, even if you want to... I don't know, do you want to be a PR or something, you still going to have to build a database or, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it has to be taught. There has to be a more concerted effort at a federal level and at a local, at a state level and at a local level. And, you know, this isn't just the schools have to do it. I mean, you have to look to youth organizations who should be teaching the kids and that kind of thing as well. And, you know. I think Lauren Gibbs, that she did have a great point in that if you look at the program, the developer community, they're very big on helping each other on an open source community, mm. basically. So she said that, you know, if the government could figure out a way to get this going and then not put too much red tape around it yeah. so that they could just kind of then get out of the way and let the open source, the developer community kind of come in and open source this project as a whole, I think that you would see some great success. But right now, I can't recall ever hearing a politician. You know, talk about, I know John Kasich in Ohio, that he finally uh, became one of the 12 states to sign over standards and stuff yeah. like that. But it's not something that you hear about well, that And often. you've got to do it from an early age as well. There's a reason why we teach kids languages in exactly. primary school, yeah. uh, um, or K-12 as you guys call it here, um, which is that it's easy to learn a language when you're young. And we're having kids who are doing calculus at age 15, 14, 13 now, whatever. Yeah. 
So why are we not teaching them, in addition to learning Spanish or uh, you know, French or German or whatever, a little bit of coding on the side as well, from the age of five, six years old? They're all using iPads, they're all using computers, they know what they're doing. So I'm going to work for president, and there'll be, you know, computer science classes mandatory. Mm. We're going to get rid of actually foreign language classes, I'm sorry. I know it's a good skill, but that's an elective that if you want to take it, you can. Okay, you're right. going to learn the language of computers before you're going to learn the language of other I think people. in this country, you've got to learn Spanish, man. Less and, <laughs> less and less do you have to actually interact with a human, and more and more do you have to interact with computers. So that's going to be the important that's language. Um, and we're going to also make it mandatory. You're going to learn about debt. You're going to learn about credit card management. Yes. You're going to learn about how to balance a checkbook. This You're going to learn about all these the kind of things. Like, yeah. These are the core things. Computer programming, yeah. learning about how to manage your finances, and uh, learning about your political system. Yeah. The three things that should be taught in schools. Yes. Those are the most important things because right now we have a generation growing up in massive debt. Yeah both through credit cards and through colleges. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Going to your private educated schools, you suckers. And um, and then we're not teaching them what the basic skills of tomorrow are actually gonna be. So let's put them in the debt, let's make them run up credit card bills, destroy their credit, and then let's not teach them what the tools of tomorrow will be. Yep, that, that is a way of creating a Almost dystopian like society. deliberate society. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It really got yeah, that yeah. feel. Um, so yeah, vote for Tony Maliki in 2020. Um, just don't ever look at my Facebook feeds or any of my photos yeah. and stuff like that because... If you're from the New York Times, just don't investigate. Yeah, exactly. Just don't dig too deep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Speaking of dystopias. Dystopias, yes. Yeah, yeah. Segway. Uh, this is actually something we spoke about in the newsroom a, a little while ago. Um, but I asked James, like, you know, how is the movie Bright on Netflix? So yeah. we're, we're switching to that portion of the program where we uh, just talk about yeah. nonsense, but... How was the movie Bright? And you said it was very good. I enjoyed it. I really liked it. It was like a really kind of cheesy... Um, it's just different. This is For those who don't know, it's a Netflix original movie. I think the first ever movie that they yeah. produced. It was the first blockbuster. It had a $90 million budget or something like that. It With was, Will Smith was in it. and Will then Smith, Joel Edgerton, um, a couple other people as well. had like big names writing the script. Um, it was their first big effort. And it was just... You know what? It was just so bizarre when I saw... Um, the, the first trailers for it, and I was like, because I read a lot of fantasy and uh, I play a lot of fantasy games and that kind of thing, um, and you've just never really seen this in a film before, like a modern day kind of thing with like orcs involved and that kind of yeah. stuff, and the, the commerce was like, this looks great. Watched it, I know that you would hate it. I know that various other people would hate it in this office as well. I like um, sci-fi, yeah. You like sci-fi, but I mean, I've got a, I've got a particular um, love for kind of quite shitty sci-fi in a okay. way that I can't really sort of describe. Yeah. Um, it's not going to make any critics list apart from maybe a list of the worst films. Well, got destroyed, destroyed by critics. Absolutely destroyed. But but the audiences loved it. I mean, there's yeah. one, I remember one statistic saying that um, in the first week or so after release, I think, because they also were very smart and released it over the Christmas period. Mm -hmm. They said at any one point during the first week, 11 million people were watching Bright. At any one point Jesus. during that week. Um, and they've already commissioned a sequel starring Will Smith. <laughs> doing all this again. Uh, despite the fact that it's got like a, you know, a score on Rotten Tomatoes that is radioactive, it's, yeah. uh, and it's just it raises a really interesting point. And I mean, I used to work as a film journalist back in the very early days of my career, so this is particularly of interest to me. But like, the idea of how disconnected reviews are and how subjective reviews are versus what people actually enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a whole article I think it was in Vanity Fair actually on um, on uh, Netflix is kind of going through why people loved it and why critics hated it. A number of really interesting little uh, tidbits in there. One, one being that they took off the star review system on Netflix because they worked out that people were reviewing the title of things 
um, but it didn't match up with the audience behavioural pattern. So they would binge watch TV shows okay. and give them like kind of you know three stars or whatever. And spend all their time watching them, and they would give a film they watch once and then never again five stars or something. Like yeah, that, exactly. you know everyone expects the film to be great and that kind of thing. Um, and then you look at uh, people whose job it is to review stuff, and it's tough because you do have to have when you're when you're acting as a critic, you have to have a set of standards by which you hold all films to. Otherwise, it's not fair. Sure. Like you know. If I reviewed um, 2001 A Space Odyssey one way and then reviewed, you know, uh, some low-budget science fiction film to a different standard because it's low-budget, it would be wrong to do that. You have to treat things on an equal level. Because there are some movies that come out wanting to be this this artistic or Mm -hmm. tour kind of thing, and if you fail at that, if that is what you are going for, then, you know... You, you deserve, where Jay and Silent Bob, you know, yeah, exactly. they're kind of coming out and just saying, listen, this is going to be stupid with a lot of dick jokes. Well, okay? again, this has been a problem with reviewing since day one, is the fact of I've always hated the idea of having a star review system, because people don't read the reviews. They look at the star, they look at the thing, and if they yeah. hate, if they love that film and see you hate it, you get a barrage of hate mail the next day. Mm. People don't read the review. Um, so, but having that kind of common set of standards means that you don't necessarily have the freedom to... Because it isn't fair, though. Because the thing is, you have to review things on the same level. You can't just say, well, I understand it's trying to be cheeky, it's trying to be funny. Everything has to be compared to The Godfather, and you're all going to fail. This is it. I mean, and this is also the fallacy of it as well. And this is why I I, eventually I got out of it. I hated doing it because I I couldn't keep holding films I really enjoyed and, like, viscerally, like, because that's the whole point of entertainment, is to be entertained. And all entertainment is inherently subjective. I'm going to love something that you hate, you're going to love something that I hate. the reasons for that may have nothing to do with the artistic quality of it or whatever. Yeah. Just the simple fact that I just enjoyed it because I like stories about Gravity was the dumbest movie I've ever seen oh, in my life, it, only like followed it. by Interstellar, which was even dumber than that movie. I, I mean, I both of them are slightly trying. I do like them both. Um, like, I mean, but uh, me and my wife disagree wholeheartedly on Blade Runner. I love mm-hmm. Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and I thought it was just visually and artistically amazing. Speak to Veronica about it. She was like, "That was the most boring two and a half hours of my goddamn life. Don't never take me to the cinema again." What was it? Uh, Planet of the Apes, the last one. War for the Planet. Of the Apes. I love the first two of yeah. uh, the reboot series. Were fantastic, especially Rise of the Planet. Of the, Apes. the third one was the dumbest movie I've ever seen in my life, except for the Interstellar and all the other ones. Um, it got to like ninety some odd percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm like, how did people like this movie? I was literally laughing at how stupid I thought this movie was. So it really is a subjective thing. Oh, I had the same thing as was it District Thirteen that came out a while back yeah. with um, uh, yeah Neil Blomkamp and everyone loved it. I hated it. Well, yeah. it was just a, a transparent uh, this, film. Yeah. This is the District Nine, uh, District the Nine, one in sorry, South Africa, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I love that movie. I was again, yeah, and I can see why people liked it, but I didn't like it. And again, that's the whole thing about it. But yeah, I mean, Bright, I loved because I mean, if if anyone listening has ever played role playing games, it's essentially Shadowrun, um, which is cool. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just a really interesting thing that Netflix is doing now as well, where we're moving into an era where you don't have these, the old traditional gatekeepers of entertainment you used to have. So it used to be a case that if a film got panned in the New York Times or if Ebert and, uh, yeah, and Siskel um, gave it a one-star review, that would never get a sequel. It just wouldn't, because like, yeah. they control what people like trusted. Now, in the age of the internet and with... Um, things getting picked up by Netflix and they're doing their own thing. You know, people. I think they've learned that they don't have to be beholden to this anymore. It's actually it's it's what does the what do the people vote with with their feet yeah. or with their eyes in this case? You know, a couple, couple shows just before we wrap up on Netflix. Um, 
the end of the so I'm going to use this in the title. The end of the fucking world is sensational episode eight mm-hmm. episodes really quickly to binge through. Fantastic dark dark uh, comedy kind of show. I compare it to American Psycho, Pulp Fiction meets like a teen rom com. Uh, very good, and um, I just recently watched that, and I highly recommend. It. I I freaking love that show. Um, I got nothing else. After You're not that. gonna pump uh, Alice's. Alice's Alice just got back. My girlfriend Alice got back from Utah Sundance. Their film was premiered there at uh, called We the Animals. Public record uh, is their first ever feature film. Huge reviews. Very well received. Um, many have called it, uh, uh, IndieWire called it, um, this year's Moonlight. Um, it is, I haven't seen it yet, but yeah. I know the work, I know that it was based off of a book, uh, by a New York Times writer, and, uh, the premise of it is very good. So once that comes out on Netflix or wherever, definitely go check that out. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be good. I'm All right. Yeah. Well, next week, uh, I think we're going to have a guest for you. Um, and, but, uh, you know, like I said, things fall through, so I'm not going to... I don't want us to look stupid. Under promise and over deliver. Yeah, exactly. That's the water's muffin. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, thanks uh, for joining in this week, and we will see you next week. See you soon, guys. Bye.